Hello, welcome to Mind Chat, the podcast with the lowest production values and the greatest philosophy. My name's Philip Goff. Hello, welcome to Mind Chat. My name's Keith Frankish. And we are over the moon today <laughs> to be joined by the legendary Donald Hoffman. Welcome to Mind Chat. Thank you so much, Philip and Keith. Great pleasure. Thanks for your kind invitation. We're delighted to have you, and uh, we're sorry that it, um, it, it's been delayed so long. We were looking forward to having you in the autumn. I'll just briefly introduce um, Don to you, to the viewers. Um, so Donald Hoffman is a professor in the Department of Cognitive Sciences at the University of California, Irving. Um, he studies consciousness and visual perception and evolutionary psychology. Um, <clears throat> using uh, experiments and mathematical models. And his work in vision science has led him to conclude that perception has evolved to hide the nature of reality from us. And that the fundamental reality is actually very different from what we, we ordinarily take it to be. And he's argued for this in many places, including his well-known 2019 book, um, The Case Against Reality, uh, How Evolution Hides the Truth from Us. To hides the truth from our eyes. So, Dom, welcome. It's great to have you. Thank you so much. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I look forward to discussing all this. <clears throat> so, yes, it's a familiar theme on Mind Chat that uh, Keith and the guest end up ganging up on me. But I'm hoping this time maybe, maybe... Don and I will have more in common, but anyway, we'll find out. So I think we're going to have a pretty, pretty straightforward session today. We're going to just uh, try and learn a little bit more about Don's views and then <coughs> maybe gently probe some areas of possible disagreement or possible agreement. And then hopefully at the end, we'll have time for some audience questions, if you can hang around till a bitter end. So as always, if you're enjoying these videos or podcasts, please do. Like the video right now, subscribe to the channel, comment, subscribe to the podcast, write us a five-star review, and just send us <laughs> lots of love, etc. Okay, okay, let's have a discussion. Right, well, uh, let's begin, I guess, with, a, with an introduction to, a general introduction to your, to your views, uh, um, Don. I mean, in some ways, I suppose, we are, your views and mine could be seen as, as diametrically opposed. I mean, I, I think that consciousness, is, at least as a lot of philosophers conceive of it, doesn't really exist and that introspection misleads us about its nature. But you have an equally, perhaps even more radical claim that the world around us, um, uh, as we ordinarily conceive of it, doesn't exist and that perception misleads us about its nature. Um, so, could you just tell us about that view and how you came to it and uh, what, what justifies it? What led you to, 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 to this quite radical view? Right. So, um, well, maybe I'll, I'll start with just a little bit of my thoughts on, on physicists who, who are saying something similar. Say a little bit about that and then go back and talk about my own little history of, of this. So what, what I find very interesting is that physics for centuries has assumed that space-time, or space and time, more recently space-time, is fundamental. And in the 20th century, that got a nice, clean mathematical foundation with Einstein's special and general theories of relativity 
in, in quantum field theory, right? Our physics was firmly based on a foundation of space-time being fundamental. And even particles, uh, you know, the, the, the bosons, leptons, and quarks of the standard model of physics are, according to physicists, simply irreducible unitary representations of the Poincaré group of symmetries of space-time. In other words, they are properties of space-time itself. They're these elementary representations of space-time. So space-time has been the foundational idea in our mathematics, mathematical theories in physics have, have, have really been about that. But what's interesting is when you put quantum field theory and general relativity together, space-time ceases to have any operational meaning at the Planck scale, 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, 10 to the minus 43 seconds. And that leads many physicists like Nima Arkani Hamed and David Gross and Nathan Seiberg and others to say, and I quote, space-time is doomed. It's not fundamental. And of course, they don't just wave you know, their hands in despair and, and then, no, that's actually for them an opening. This is wonderful. Okay. So what's beyond space-time? And so they're going out in, the, in just in the last 10 years, they found structures like the amplitudehedron and decorated permutations and so forth. So, so it's, 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 you know, it's not a problem. It's actually an opportunity and it's time to go beyond. But, but now l let me give a dialectical problem that they've got, right? The problem goes all like this. If, if space-time is fundamental, then we get quantum field theory and general relativity. We get that mathematics. If quantum field theory and general relativity are true, then space-time has no operational meaning beyond the Planck scale. Okay. Well, if space-time has no operational meaning beyond the Planck scale, then space-time is doomed and space-time is not fundamental. Therefore, if space-time is not fundamental, there's no reason to believe quantum field theory and general relativity in the first place. And so physicists are now caught in this terrible logical bind. They've shot themselves in the foot logically. Now, no, no physicist would take that argument seriously, right? Physicists would say, no, 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 you, you completely misunderstand how science works. No theory is the final word. Every theory makes assumptions. And a good theory will quantify those assumptions with mathematics and let you look very, very closely at the logical implications of all the assumptions that you made. And hopefully, either you will find empirical evidence that you're wrong, or you will find the, from the mathematics itself, the limits, the necessary limits of those concepts, because any theory necessarily has limits. That's just the way theories go. So if your theory is weak, it will not be strong, the mathematics is weak, you will not be able to figure out what the limits of your theory are, and you won't be able to sh say, okay, here's what, okay, like in the case of space-time, aha, space-time is great, but it stops at 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, precisely. That's where it stops, in 10 to the minus 43 seconds. Now we need a new framework. We need to go beyond. And now, but whatever we do to go beyond, better project back into space-time as a special case, and we and and therefore we and we should be able to see from this more general framework 
how we get back space time and general relativity and quantum field theory as limited um, subsets or you know special cases of the uh, more general theory. And of course, that's not going to be um, that's not going to be the final word. We go beyond space time. We'll just um, we won't be getting the final word there. We'll, we'll, this is a never ending process. There is no theory of everything. We'll always be getting deeper assumptions and looking at their. So, so, but at every step, you could you could lead to this. Oh, you have a dialectical problem here, right? You started with these assumptions, right? Space and time and so forth. You got your math, and then the math goes back and shows that your assumptions are wrong. So, so clearly, this whole process is is, is nuts. And, and and I'm saying that no, that's the way the process has to go in science because the assumptions are never the final word. They're they're always we're in some sense pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps, right? And the way we do that is we say, okay, this is the best view we have so far. Let's, let's make it as rigorous as we can and then try to find out where it breaks. And as soon as we break it, then we break out the champagne because that's how we then make our, our next move to the next step. Okay, so, so, so we've got these tensions in fundamental physics that and that are showing up when we do the math and that something needs to give, we've got to go somewhere. Okay, yeah. now, but you're, you're a cognitive scientist, you're a scientist of vision. I mean, you're, you're early, well, most of your, of your research has been on, on the um, um, psychology of vision. So how does, how does that give you a perspective on where we need to go? So, so I... So I did all of that to say, this is what I'm doing in the case of evolution and visual perception. Mm -hmm. So I'm saying our best theories right now about perception are evolutionary. There's nothing right. that, that rivals evolution by any means. That's the best. So we, we have to take evolution by natural selection very, very seriously if we want to understand um, how sensory systems came to be and um, how they work. Yep. So when we do that, um, when we say, okay, Darwin had this informal theory, right? There was no mathematics, but it was very, very deep, but it was informal. But we've now made it formal. We have evolutionary game theory, um, which is sort of a mathematical instantiation of universal Darwinism. But it's a, a, a mathematically precise theory. So my attitude is the same attitude as of the physicist. Let's take our theory the mathematical statement of our theory and see where we can go back and break our assumptions that we started with. That's, that's the key. That is, so that's the spirit in which I'm doing this. It's the same spirit in which the physicists are doing it. So I'm not saying that, you know, that space time is fundamental and I'm saying that quantum field theory is right. I'm saying those are the best tools we have right now. So we use them. Same thing with evolution of natural selection. I'm, I'm not, you know, doctrinaire about that. But okay. there's no better theory. So as a scientist, it's my job to use the best theories we have. Right. And evolution, evolutionary game theory is the best mathematics we have. Again, I'm not saying these are the final word, but they're the best we have. So it's my job to use them and try to break them. So we go and then try to prove theorems. So and work, I work with Chaitan Prakash and others. And, and what we find is when you actually take the mathematics of evolutionary game theory, and you ask, what is the probability that natural selection would shape sensory systems right. to have perceptions that are homomorphic to structures in objective reality? Clean technical question, 
no hand wave. What is the probability that natural selection using evolutionary game theory would shape sensory systems to, um, to have perceptions that are homomorphic to whatever structures might be in objective reality? And it turns out you can ask that question and answer it without having any assumptions about what objective reality is. You can say, let objective reality have whatever structure you want. It could be, you know, topologies, metric spaces, whatever you, whatever you want it to have. What is the probability if it had those structures that a sensory system would be evolved to see them? And the answer is precisely zero, precisely zero, given current evolutionary game theory. Now, one, there's two re responses to that. Well, okay, we need to change evolutionary game theory, right? So uh, one of the problems that, that gives rise to this result is that all fitness payoff functions are equally likely, right? There's nothing in evolutionary theory that says the, we should have a bias toward these fitness payoff functions in our theory. Now, someone might come along and say, well, okay, uh, then I will change the theory and I will give a bias. Fine. You have to have a principled reason for the bias, but but and that, that may not be easy to do because right now, if someone had thought that there was a reason for biases in our choice of, of fitness payoff functions, they would have put that out there already. So this is going to be non-trivial, but but hey, you could try to do it. But so but but here's now the dialectical argument that you could give against me, and and which has been given against me, right? So so Hoffman is in the same unfortunate dialectical dialectical situation that I just did to the physicists. So Hoffman starts off with, you know, assuming evolutionary theory. Okay, so he's got evolutionary theory. Now, if evolutionary theory, then um, um, evolutionary game theory, right? That, that's the mathematics of it. And evolutionary game theory is justified because of evolutionary theory. Well, evolutionary game theory goes back and gets rid of things like um, belief in um, the structures that we see, like organisms and space and time. Uh, you know, all the things that were part of the, the basic language of, of, of Darwin's evolutionary theory. So therefore, Hoffman is in this terrible dialectical situation, right? He started with evolution by natural selection, took a mathematical model of it, which came back and proved that evolution by natural selection, as we currently understand it, is wrong. So therefore, there's no reason to believe evolutionary game theory that he used to disprove it. So now, now, he's, now he's caught. So it's that kind of dialectical... So. And my answer, again, is the same as the answer of the physicist. This is the way science works. We're trying to find the limits of our basic assumptions and break them. And then we have to take a creative leap and say, okay, what is a deeper theory that goes beyond space-time in the case of physics, or be goes beyond evolution by natural selection in the case of the evolution and perception? What is a deeper framework? And, and there's a constraint on that deeper framework. You better get back the prior framework as a mathematically precise special case. Just like, for example, when we transcended Newton to go to Einstein, we can get back Newton, in many cases, directly as a special case where the speed of light goes to infinity. Or Planck's constant, in the case of quantum theory, where Planck's constant goes precisely to zero. In many cases, you can get back Newton directly as, as that kind of special case. So that's the kind. So that's my my attitude in going after this. So, so and, I, and I say this because uh, um, I've been, you know, many times accused of, of shooting myself in the foot logically. And I, and I want to to point out that th this is not an oversight. This is the way 
that science works. And, and I'll, I'll just say why it always has to work this way is that no scientific theory is the final word. Every scientific theory makes assumptions. And a good scientific theory will, will take those assumptions and make them so mathematically precise that you find out the limits of the very assumptions that went into your mathematics. And then you transcend it. Then you, then you take the creative leap. So that's how science works. And at every step, it might look like you're caught in this, di this unfortunate dialectical situation, but that's how we pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. Now, if, now I'm not arguing that sometimes the scientists make unfortunate logical errors. Of course they do. But this is not a logical error. This is the heart and soul of how science progresses. So that's the spirit in which I'm saying, and I should say this, I don't know if evolution by natural selection is true. And I don't know if evolutionary game theory is true. All I'm saying is those are the best theories and the best mathematics we have so far in this area. And they tell us unequivocally that the probability is zero that any sensory system sees any aspect of reality as it is. That means space and time and physical objects and organisms as we see them are not the truth. They are useful fictions from the point of view of evolution theory. Okay. Um Maybe I, maybe later I come back to you a little bit on that question about the non-veridicality perception. But let's just we need we, we need now to to get the sort of third element of your sure. your picture, the constructive picture. So we've got this this, this, this problem, physics account of fundamental reality that space time doesn't doesn't as, as we ordinarily conceive of it doesn't work. We've got this evolutionary argument that uh, perception doesn't reveal the nature of reality to us. But you've got kind of got a, a synthesis of this that, that gives us an account of what fundamental reality really actually is, right? Right. So can we can we get that to, to get the complete the picture now? Yes. So 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 that then is the creative leap, right? So mm -hmm. this is the point where scientists have to uh, be daring and make a leap into the dark, and uh, but then make mathematics and and then see what can be tested and so forth, and so. I'm faced with this. I'm interested, as as both of you are, in consciousness, um, and the hard, the hard problem of consciousness, um, and what is the nature of consciousness. And I'd like a, a a scientific theory as well. I mean, I'm interested in the philosophical discussions about about consciousness, of course, but as a scientist, I'm hard nosed about getting a mathematically precise theory that we can actually go after and and start to make you know, precise predictions about specific conscious experiences in the relationship to specific neural activity, for example. No hand wave. And so the arguments that I just gave undermine the idea that space and time are fundamental. And therefore, they undermine the idea that, that physical particles inside space and time are fundamental, right? The, the leptons, bosons and quarks are just irreducible representations of the symmetries of space-time. If space-time is fun isn't fundamental, particles are not fundamental. And, and therefore, things made out of particles, like neurons and brains, are not fundamental. So I can't, so from this point of view, I cannot boot up consciousness from that framework. So I have to take a creative leap beyond space-time. So I decided to follow the physicists. The physicists have said, we are looking beyond space-time, and look what we found. We found the deepest structure they found are what they call decorated permutations. 
it was really remarkable. And their, their surprise is anybody. Permutations are like shuffling cars, right? Literally just changing the orders of things. Decorated permutations, we can go into the techni technical aspects of it if you want, but they're just a slightly a slight variation on permutations. They add a little bit of uh, bells and whistles to it. And if people are interested in the details, I'll tell you the details of the bells and whistles because it does turn out to be important for the actual physics, those bells and whistles. But at top level, decorated permutations are permutations. And this is like, so beyond space-time, there's this thing, they find the amplitudehedron for, for massless particles and they're, they're scattering. And behind that are decorated permutations. So here's the leap I'm making. I'm saying, I can't, if, if I want to take consciousness seriously, and I can't say that it came out of particles because the physicists have already told me that space-time is doomed and so particles are doomed. And they'll, they'll even say, like you know, Neymar Connie Hamed will say, Reductionism is doomed. Reductionism cannot work for, for these principled reasons. So I can't give a reductionist account of, of consciousness. So let's, let's do the leap. Can I start with a mathematically precise theory of consciousness, qua consciousness, not as reduced to particles, not as emergent from brain activity or anything inside space and time, because space-time is doomed. That, that foundation is gone. Let me do it consciousness, qua consciousness, on its own terms. So, so I actually have to write down a model from first principles about consciousness, not about how neurons might give rise to consciousness or the illusion of consciousness, just consciousness, qua consciousness, by itself. That's what I've got to do. Uh, and, oh, sorry. Okay, finish. But, and I've got to then project it into the decorator permutations. If I want to get... So, see, I, I want to start with consciousness and get space, time, and particles and brains as a projection of a deeper theory of consciousness. That's the opposite of the standard view. The standard view is it's a reductionist. I start with space, time, and its particles, and neurons and brains, and then consciousness emerges. But the physicists tell us that that, whole, that reductionism is dead. That, that whole approach is dead. So I have to do the opposite. I start with consciousness. I need to project it into the decorator permutations. And if I can do that, then I can project it into space-time and actually predict scattering amplitudes for particle collisions in colliders, and, you know, the Large Hadron Collider and so forth. And so that's, that's, what, we've, that's what we're doing, and, and that's sort of the, the, the big picture. So it's a theory of what we call conscious agents, and we're hoping to do a, a paper in a physics journal, in which case we will drop the notion of consciousness. We'll just talk about um, a Markovian dynamics of entities beyond space-time that projects into uh, these decorated permutations. Because where the physicists are right now is they have these static structures beyond space-time, like decorated permutations, but they have no dynamics. And so we, we have a dynamics of, Mar what we have is a new theorem that shows how Markovian dynamics lead, project canonically into these decorated permutations. And so if you don't like consciousness, you can just take our, our theory of conscious agents and just say, you know, Hoppen's crazy about consciousness, forget about that. But this dynamic, this we have a Markovian dynamics beyond of entities beyond space-time. And it, this Markovian dynamics projects into decorated permutations and into scattering amplitudes. So there are these entities, so we can call them BSTEs, you know, entities beyond space-time, BSTs, beyond space-time entities. Um, 
that have this Markovian dynamics, which then leads to predictions uh, through the decorated permutations about scattering amplitudes. Now, that's going to be uncomfortable for anybody because we're dealing with entities beyond space-time that are dynamics, that are dynamical. What are these entities? I mean, th th if you don't like consciousness, this isn't any better. This is whatever we put out there is not going to be comfortable. These are entities not curled up inside dimensions of space-time. This is not string theory where you have these dimensions curled up inside space-time. This is space-time is doomed. There are new structures utterly and totally beyond space-time. And space-time is a trivial, trivial little tiny data structure that we get from projection. So okay. now, now I'll stop. Okay. okay. Well, let's not let's not lose consciousness just yet. I mean, there are okay. ways that, that we could go here that actually I, I might sure. I might go with you a little bit. But let's not lose consciousness here because we, you were fl floating the idea there that, that, that consciousness might be fundamental. Now we have here with us, of course, uh, someone who has written a book with the subtitle. Um, um, uh, what is the subtitle, Philip? It's uh, the, the, uh, you've forgotten. No, 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 oh. no, it's not. No, it's the, it's the, the, the academic book. It's the, the oh, right. one with fundamental in the title. What's the, what's the name of it? I thought you read this every day, Keith. I thought it was your Bible. Ah, <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm really sure. Consciousness and Fundamental Reality. Fundamental Consciousness reality. and Fundamental Reality. 2017. Okay, <laughs> so this is, the, this is the point to bring. Is that right? Is, this is the, the point to bring, bring Philip in here because yes. obviously he's saying something that is at least superficially similar to what to what right. you're suggesting so i think it's time you two uh, uh spoke to each other and, and sorted out <laughs> absolutely where, <laughs> which of you yeah, has well, got I, the, the right take on this go on philip I, no i do because i i do off, quite often get asked actually don what is the difference between our views and i think maybe you'll disagree i think there's more that unites us than that divides us um so as you i mean crucially as keith says we both think that at the fundamental level, reality is made up of consciousness. Uh, so I'm definitely on board with that. And um, but of course, as maybe you've experienced, I certainly have. M many people still find this a little bit of a bizarre claim. Um, it's things have got much much better on this regard, actually. But some people do fi still find it a little bit of a peculiar claim. Even feel it sounds kind of unscientific uh, to be putting consciousness at the base of reality. Um, so, so, so if I'm understanding, it was really interesting your your responses. So, so am I understanding you right? It's to do with, it seems like j just getting clear on your motivation that there are two issues. One is that because physics is looking like it's rejecting space and time, we, we need something else down there. We, we we need something else to ground out reality, and also at the same time we've got this hard problem of consciousness that we we've struggled to explain consciousness in terms of uh, physical processes in the brain. So then is, is the thought that maybe we can kill two birds with one stone. And if we, if we put consciousness down there at the base, a, we, we, we don't have to try and get consciousness out of non-conscious stuff. So we circumnavigate the hard problem and B we we've answered this, we we filled this hole in physics. This this need for something underneath space time is that is that kind of 
your motivation? Have I got that right? Or yeah, that, that's that's the right motivation. And and the goal then is to give a mathematically rigorous theory of consciousness that can actually, without hand wave, do the job. I would like to start with the say Markovian dynamics of conscious agents and get exact values for scattering of say two gluons in and four gluons out. In other words, no hand wave, a mathematically precise theory of consciousness that gives you exact scattering amplitudes. Wow, the reason yeah. why people have dismissed the idea that consciousness could be fundamental is there's been no scientific theory on the table. In, in, the term, in, in, in terms of a rigorous mathematical theory that can make predictions about things that we care about, like scattering amplitudes. By the way, I, I talk about scattering amplitudes not because they're the most interesting thing or the, the only thing we want to talk about. It's the simplest thing that we can possibly try to account, accomplish here. That, so the reason I'm going after scattering amplitudes is because that that is the most simple thing. I don't want to try to get brain science out of this. Not yet. I mean, start with consciousness, get brain science. That's that's way too ambitious. If I can get scattering amplitudes, then after centuries of work, we'll be able to get brain <laughs> structures. I mean, that's going to be hard work. But scattering amplitudes, I think we can get immediately. Wow, it's 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 a fascinating and ambitious project. I mean, people might be interested actually. We so I I, I might have, I mentioned on social media I won a bit of money to try and work out if the universe is conscious, a uh, three-year project. And and one of the things I'm doing with this is hosting a conference uh, over in the states in September, and um, we're going to have a session on consciousness and fundamental physics and. Uh, um, I'm honored that Don's going to be uh, contributing his, his thoughts to that as well as Lee Smolin and Sean Carroll so I'm really, I mean obviously the physics gets a little bit out of my area of expertise I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing um, uh, physicists and mathematicians interact on this and as you say that's what we need to do just, just get these conversations going um, so yeah so so yeah, so I guess there's, there's that, there is that core agreement between us that um, consciousness is at the base of reality so i suppose i guess that the uh the, the the point which i'm not yet totally persuaded by is 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 this thought that space and time and um matter are in some sense an illusion uh i would rather say um the physical world is real it's just made up of consciousness um although you know having said that i'm you know i'm i don't really have a dog in the race i'm i'm uh totally open to persuasion so so maybe maybe, maybe you can um, persuade me today so so let's just maybe we can dig into these arguments uh, a little more so so as I'm understanding the the, the two arguments the, the, the latter from evolutionary um, psychology but the first the, the first one from from um, from these very interesting developments in physics which as you say seem to be pointing to um, space and time not existing at the fundamental level of reality. Um, so, so one, I mean, this might just be a clarification question, but I suppose uh, my hesitation there is, I, I just wonder whether there's a little bit of a conflation between existence and fundamental existence. So, you know, we've accepted for a long time now that tables are not fundamental. I mean, did, did we ever think they're fundamental? Probably not. You know, we've always thought there, there's something else more fundamental. Maybe they're made up of atoms. Uh, maybe they're made up of fields or peculiar stuff. Maybe they're made up of consciousness. 
you know, in any sense, they're not in any case, they're not fundamental. But that doesn't usually lead us to say they're not real. Right. We normally think we normally rather say tables exist. They're probably real. They're just not that just don't exist at the fundamental level of reality. So why can't we say the same if we're, if we're just looking at the physics? So I'm, we'll, we'll you know, save the evolution stuff for a moment. If we're just focusing on the physics, why wouldn't we say um, space and time exist? They're just they're just emergent. They're, they're not fundamental features of reality. Is there something I'm missing here? Right. So I think that's the way the physicists are, are thinking about this. They would say that that you know, we're not going to throw away space and time. They're wonderful frameworks, and we're going to continue to use them. But they're but they're not fundamental. Now, what they will say is that the approach of reductionism will not work. Mathematically, it won't work. So it turns out that part of what's what's happening here is that the reductionist idea that, you know, which has worked spectacularly in certain cases, like statistical mechanics and so forth, reductionism has worked spectacularly. But it turns out the, the, the arguments that lead to realizing that space-time falls apart at the Planck scale also lead to the, the death of reductionism. So, what do you so mean that, by reductionism? Could I just so that um, actually the Niemar Kani Hamed has a nice little thing about this: the idea that as we go to smaller and smaller regions of, of space, we find more and more fundamental laws and more and more fundamental entities. Mm, okay, that turns out to be false. Uh, and, and in fact, what, what happens is as, as you try, as you how do we go to smaller and smaller regions of space? What we do is we use um, for example, microscopes that are more and more powerful. Well, what does that mean? What means we're, for example, using light or some kind of radiation with smaller and smaller wavelengths to resolve finer and finer. Well, as you do that, you're putting more and more energy. You know, e equals H nu, um, Einstein's formula from his 1905 paper. You're putting more and more energy to smaller, smaller space. And then you take Einstein's 1915 paper about general relativity, and you realize that at some point you're going to create a black hole. And so the problem is that 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 as you go smaller and smaller, um, you're putting more and more energy density into the into a small region of space, and eventually the energy density is so high that you create a black hole. And and so the whole reductionist paradigm actually falls apart. You, it is simply false that as you go to smaller scales of space and time, you will find the more fundamental entities and fundamental laws. It's just plain false. Mm -hmm. At some point space-time itself has to be abandoned and a new set of laws and entities entirely outside of space-time have to be brought into, into being. For example, the amplitudehedron and decorated permutations. Now space-time comes out, by the way, space-time is not, not then reduced to these deeper structures. It comes out as a trivial projection of these deeper structures. So, so that's why, in some sense, it's real in the same sense that my headache is real, right? It, 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 they're, they're real forms of perception. Space and time are forms of our perceptions, and they're real forms of perceptions. But in terms of being the fundamental entities that physics is looking for, where we find the, the entities and laws that, that are the foundation, space and time isn't it. Just not it at all. Mm. And it's unrecoverable. You really have to go to make a, a, a huge leap outside and get a whole new set of laws. I'll put it this way. What Nima and others are saying is not only is space-time doomed, quantum theory is doomed. 
quantum theory is not fundamental. So we, we have to come up, and, and the structures they're finding, like the amplitudehedron, um, there is no locality and unitarity. The, the, those, are, those are not properties. The, it turns out you code locality and unitarity in, in sort of the, the geometric structure of the amplitudehedron in terms of the, the, um, the, the, the face structure of this, of this geom geometric object. So you get locality and unitarity as, you know, properties of, of something that, that transcends locality and unitarity. So, so it's in that sense that, um, you know, first reductionism is false. Quantum theory itself is not fundamental. Mm -hmm. and, and so, so I'm not saying that these things aren't useful and, and in some sense real, you know, they're real good tools, but we have these really sincere limits on them, right? And reductionism has its sincere limit. It works for for the the issue of um, statistical mechanics and you know thermodynamics. That that's, that's wonderful, but at some point it just falls apart. So mm -hmm. so that's why I'm I'm taking this 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 leap and saying let's put consciousness entirely outside space time, and show how space time all the structures of space time. Um, turn out to be basically just one kind of interface that conscious agents can use to interact with each other, one of countless different interfaces. So space-time is not fundamental in the sense that it's one format for a headset out of countless formats for headsets that the conscious agents could use to interact. And in that sense, it's not special at all. It, it happens to be the headset that we use, and so it's it's real in the sense that it happens to be our headset that we happen to use. So it's real in that sense, but it's not real in in a more deep sense. So, yeah, I mean, I do find this this cutting edge work in physics uh, absolutely fascinating and baffling. Um, but I suppose I, I suppose I'm a bit worried that you you got quite a specific notion of reduction there that it means, you know, we keep getting down to littler things. And obviously that notion of reduction is going to fall apart if, if you're bottoming sure. out with no space and time because right? you're not going to get little things if you've got no space and time. Right. But, I mean, right. we might have a more general notion of reduction. I mean, I'm thinking of the, I mean, the, the picture Sean Carroll, for example, uh, lays out very nicely, you know, where, where I mean, he, I think he, he's also inclined to think we don't get space and time at the base. I think he, wh what he thinks the, uh, at the fundamental level, we just have a vector or something, <laughs> a vector in a very high dimensional space, another kind of weirdly esoteric structure. Um, but he wants to say, you know, space and time are still real. They're just different ways of carving up that reality in some sense. They're still real. I mean, just as you, you might have, uh, parties are real, uh, but it's just a different way of describing people dancing and drinking and so on. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, it, I, so, so I just worry, I suppose it, it feels to me like it's going a little bit beyond the physics when you get into, you know, talking about, well, space-time adjust, the headset we put on, and, and your, your other beautiful um, metaphor of the, 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 the icon on the, the computer screen uh, and, and so on, that space and time are... are just to do with our perception of the world. So that does seem to me to be going a little bit beyond the physics, whereas someone like Sean Carroll, you know, would just say space and time aren't fundamental, but they are real. Okay, they're not, they're not reducible in the sense of 
little bits, <laughs> but they are um, maybe reducible in some more general sense, like they're just different ways of cutting up fundamental reality. But there's, but there's still, so yes, I'm still, I'm still not mm -hmm. totally persuaded. Setting aside the evolutionary stuff, which we could get sure. onto, uh, just from the physics, right? I don't see how we get this stuff about space and time just being the headset we put on and so on. That seems to me a bit of a non sequitur, maybe. I don't know. Right. And also the word real, too. I mean, this is sort it's of a, a slippery, slippery word. So, I mean, I'm happy to say that it's real. I mean, in the same sense that my headache is real, right? You, you, you may not be able to objectively measure my headache and so forth, but it's it's real. It's it's. But in the case of physics, um, physicists are dealing with this kind of question in what in a very technical way. They have a technical concept they call local realism, right? And and that that's a very so that's there, there's no hand wave here. The local realism is the claim, the specific claim, that particles, like you know, a quark have definite specific values of their properties like position, momentum, and spin when they're not observed. That's, that's realism. That's, so that's a very specific statement. And locality is the claim that those properties have um, influences that propagate no faster than the speed of light. Okay. So, and local realism is the claim that both of those properties are true. That, and, and it turns out the Nobel Prize in December was given to three physicists who empirically showed that that local realism is false. That that's that that was the most recent Nobel Prize. Local realism is false, and and it just won the Nobel Prize. Of course, that doesn't mean they're right, but but it does lead credence to, to the idea that maybe local realism is false. That you know they're pretty conservative about these things. So so either locality is false, or realism is false, or both are false. And. And so it, that technical sense of, of real um, has won Nobel Prize for showing it's not real in, in that technical sense. So local realism is false. And my, my, my take on it is that both locality and realism are false in, the, in those technical senses. So, and there are cases, I mean, there's some wonderful papers um, that, that show specific cases where you can prove in these certain quantum mechanical experiments, you can know with probability one what value you're going to get from a certain measurement. So you can predict with probability one the measurement that you're going to get, and you can also prove that it's impossible that the value existed prior to when you measured it. Now, that that's, that's mind-bending. You know with probability one, that you will get this value, and you know for certain that the value does not exist until you measure it. That's what I mean by saying reality is false. It's in the act of measurement and not prior that the value obtains. And there are nice, clean, there's a paper by uh, Chris Fuchs, Chris Fuchs, um, F-U-C-H-S, uh, called quantum Bayesianism, and he goes through the experiments. So if you're if you're interested, you can actually read a quantum experiment and read about one where you you know the outcome with probability one, and you know for certain from quantum theory that the outcome is not does not exist until it's measured. And what I'm saying is that that what they can show in those special cases in quantum theory is true in general. 
when I see a, a physical object, um, I can, you know, when I look up at the moon, I can predict with probability one that I'll see the moon. And I also will, will say that, it not, that the moon, um, as, as I perceive it, does not exist until I perceive it. Just like the quantum measurements, they just don't. So it's in that technical sense that um, the first the, the Nobel Prize is for local realism being false. And then these other experiments I'm saying that say that realism itself is false in this very technical sense. I'm happy to say, yeah, you know, books and tables and chairs are real in a very casual sense. Absolutely. But there's this technical sense in which um, physicists have shown that realism is false. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I guess we, we need to nail down on what we mean by real or not real. And um, yeah. I mean, I, I just make one more comment on this and then we can move on. I mean, I suppose where, where to me, you know, where it might really matter to pin, pinning this down is, for example, I've seen you write at various points how, you know, critiquing integrated information theory and, and other theories of consciousness on, on the grounds that they attempt to explicate consciousness in terms of neurons and then you're saying well we know now neurons don't exist well hold on i mean it, if we can preserve a sense it, it depends that you know they they're real in in some sense maybe in a casual sense maybe in a sense we can make a little bit more precise is that enough what is required from the theory how real do they need to be for the theory to work if they're just putting down as neural correlates of consciousness or so on? Um, how real do they need to be? And um, yeah, I guess I'd, I guess I'd want to, I mean, it's getting, it's getting a bit beyond my expertise with the physics now, but I, I feel like, I feel like, again, someone like Sean Carroll would be um, obviously agreeing with it with the Nobel Prize winning work you're referring to but but still wanting to say uh, space time neurons are, are emergent phenomena and it, you know it's a challenge it is this is something actually Tim Maudlin a very interesting um, uh, philosopher of physics at uh, Rutgers University mm -hmm. challenges well how the hell do we get tables and chairs and if you out of these um, esoteric structures that physicists now point to at the fundamental level. so it's a challenge but I, sure. but I, Certainly, many other philosophers of physics and many um, physicists um, think we can have a fairly robust sense of them as being real emergent phenomena, even though they're not fundamental. And maybe, maybe that's real enough for the integrated information theory or whatever global workspace theory to have force. Um, uh, so it seems to me you really need to pin down the sense in which they're not real and why that um, undermines the theory and um, sure, yeah, sure, yeah. In, in the case of integrated information theory and global workspace theory and you know neuronal microtubules theories and so forth, my, my my attitude is I mean I mean these are of course brilliant people and 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 really interesting approaches. What what strikes me is though is that uh, you know I'm interested in specific cases where you start with your theory, you start with some particular pattern of neural activity, for example, and you get a specific pattern of integrated information that must be the taste of chocolate, or a specific pattern of uh, you know, orchestrated collapse of microtubule states, and quantum states, um, that must be the taste of vanilla. And what, what's, what's striking to me is um, there is, in the entire history of our field, not one proposal, yeah, not one. 
where you say this specific pattern of integrated information theory must be the taste of chocolate for these principled reasons, and it could not be the smell of a rose. There's, there's literally nothing on, so there, there is no specific conscious experience that's ever been explained from first principles by global workspace theory, neuronal microtubules, integrated information, nothing. There's nothing on the table. I have nothing to work with to, to critique. I mean, there are, there are a lot of promissory notes. Yeah, of course we'll be able to, well, give me one. There isn't anything on the table. Yeah. Now, in terms of there, there, maybe there's enough reality that we could still work with this. I think a good metaphor here is, I mean, if you look at your desktop, I'm seeing all sorts of icons on my desktop and things I can click on and so forth. And, and they're, they're real, they're real parts of my interface. But if I want to give a theory of um, the M2 processor in my Mac right now, and I'm going to use the language of the icons and so forth that I see on my desktop, good luck. That's the wrong language. It's a very, it's, it's in some sense, a very primitive and trivial language compared to the language I'm going to need to describe the processor and, uh, and the circuitry inside my, and so th that's the way I feel about space-time. It, it, it's a wonderful interface for getting through the day. It's not rich enough. It's, it's the wrong language set. And, and, and so the physicists are, are, are muscling up to these new, deeper concepts beyond space-time. They're realizing, okay, unitarity, quantum theory, space-time, those concepts have been really good for a few centuries. They're not good enough. We need to get a new, deeper, richer set of concepts and then show that space-time is perfectly fine to call it real, but it's a trivial projection of something far richer. And it's that sense, we need a richer framework and space-time is not rich enough. And that, and that richness, that lack of richness is why I predict that, that my, my friends and colleagues, my, these are brilliant researchers and you know, you know, integrated information theory and global workspace, they're, they're brilliant. But when you have the, a, a, a set of primitives that are just not up to the job, doesn't matter how smart you are, you'll never be able to get the job done. You'll never get a specific pattern of neural activity or, or some other kind of you know, integrated information, if it's not neural, whatever it might be, uh, that will give um, a theory for a specific consciousness. You just won't be able to do it. So Yeah, well, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Well, in terms of your first point, I think we're coming back to where we totally agree, actually. And actually, I'm going to be honest with you now, Don. I've kind of stolen your 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 argument a bit here be, just in in terms of um when i'm talk, interviewing on pod, podcasts and so on uh cool. well I, I i've i've stolen this this line from you of saying well give me one example you know of uh an experience that's been um um completely explained so you know because it's a good response to, i mean I, I i used to well i still do tend to push the philosophical arguments that there's something incoherent about the project of trying to account for qualitative subjective experience in terms of purely objective quantitative physical science mm -hmm. and um you know and i i still do push those arguments but it gets it can get technical 
Right. Uh, and yeah. so, you know, a, a, a more straightforward line, when people say, I mean, the argument I often have, I've debated a number of times now with the neuroscientist Anil Seth, and he mm -hmm. pushes the line, you know, give it time. You know, we, we, we used to think life couldn't be explained. And, um, yeah. But then the thought is, well, look, it's not that we haven't got the final theory. We haven't even explained a single experience. You know, right. you'd think we'd have made a little bit of progress explained sort of, you know, some reddish experience. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so so I I, I uh, picked up on you saying that in interviews, and um, uh, I haven't plagiarized you in writing, but I, I, I've, I've I've nicked that that uh, argumentative tool a little bit. Um, but yeah, okay, so we're in danger of agreeing too much. So let's just let, maybe we can move <laughs> on, on to the uh, the evolutionary psychology stuff, which is absolutely fascinating argument. And um, well, I, I'll just give you a, a worry that we that I've I've raised with you before. Actually, we we, we had. Um, we had we had I think three hours discussion uh, in two sections for um, with uh, hosted by Annika Harris for the an audio series she's been working on for a lot is a long time in the making that will eventually emerge, but um, yeah so so and again I'm re I'm really open to persuasion on on this and you know maybe maybe you can persuade me tonight but um, my worry with the um, evolutionary argument is that it, se it seems to me to prove too much right that okay. uh so the the argument very 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 roughly is you know that our perceptual capacities have evolved for fitness rather than truth and therefore uh we should we, we shouldn't trust them that they're, that they're, that they're probably not yielding the truth um I mean that's very very rough, but but then okay. So my 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 worry is like, as well as our perceptual faculties, we've also evolved certain capacities to attribute consciousness and mental states to others. Uh, when we see someone smiling, we attribute happiness to them. When we see someone crying, we attribute pain to them. And when we attribute beliefs and desires, and, and a lot of this is hardwired, what psychologists that you'll know better than me call theory of mind, the sense in which our ascriptions of mental states to others are hardwired. But presumably those capacities also evolved for fitness rather than truth. So, so why doesn't the argument also suggest that we shouldn't trust our, 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 our natural hardwired ascriptions of mentality to others we should maybe think other people are zombies or or at least that we get their mental states radically wrong what why i, I don't i think you don't think that you don't think i'm right, a zombie right. i hope so why why does the argument work against perceptual faculties but not theory of mind our ascription our capacity to ascribe mental states to other organisms evolved capacities? right and i saw that in your recent book that you you brought that issue up as, as well yeah i saw that um all right oh i think did, did i send you that I'd forgotten now yeah, yeah, I, I saw that. So, so yeah, I've been, I've been thinking about it because you did raise raise that issue, and <clears throat> again, I think it's this two step bootstrap that that science does. So, so it seems at first that I'm contradicting myself. I use the evolutionary argument to say that we don't see reality as it is, and then all of a sudden I say, but when someone smiles, you can see that they're actually having, a, you know, that their mood is happy. You're seeing something genuine about their consciousness. How can I say both without contradicting myself, shooting myself in the foot logically? Right, and and so the it's the, again the two-step bootstrap that science has to do. First, again, I use evolutionary game theory to show 
that in general, the probability is zero that any of our perceptions are vertical on that framework. Then I go to a deeper framework and I say, okay, so I'm gonna let go of space-time. Let me assume a framework in which um, consciousness is fundamental and which space-time is just an interface. Well, that interface is an interface to consciousness, so it's no surprise that that interface does give me genuine insight into the consciousness of the ones that I'm interacting with. But again, it's a two, it's, it's the two-step thing. First, I use the evolutionary argument to say it's just an interface, but I don't say an interface to what? And then I say, okay, new step, brand new step, outside of the evolutionary argument. Let me say that it's an interface to a, a realm of conscious agents. That's my big new step. What do I have to do? I have to show that I can use that realm of conscious agents to get back evolutionary theory as a special case. Okay, so I have to do that work. But let's assume I can do that work. Then I've taken this new leap and said that conscious experiences are real and what we call space-time and, and human bodies and so forth are just an interface. Then in this new framework, I am allowed to say the interface gives me genuine information about the conscious experiences. That's what it's for. So you see, it's a, it's a two-step argument here. And that's, that's why when we started today, I, I started off with this whole bit about logical self-contradiction because I knew it was going to raise its head over and over <laughs> and over again here. So that's why I just had to yeah. go after that first thing. Yeah, well, I don't know whether you've seen this. Maybe this is what you've heard. I, well, j just I, as I was preparing to talk to you, I, I came across a paper by... Um, Jeffrey Bagwell in the Philosophy Journal Synthes, a, a very good philosophy journal. Maybe we could put this in the notes. Yeah, sure. accusing you of uh, your argument being self-undermining, so the self-defeating rather. You know, so the argument is, um, right? Um, you're saying uh, because we evolved, we shouldn't trust our perceptual faculties. But then, if we don't trust our perceptual faculties, we can't know we evolved. So it's sort of uh, supposedly undermines right. the premise on which the argument is built um where do we go so yeah i mean well, so let it's me just one... respond to that mm. for just one okay. second I mean, I, i've read bagwell's paper and that's why oh. i started off with the example i started off with from yeah from physics because i used exactly the same logical structure that bagwell used against my argument against the physicists to show why it doesn't work it it, it, it mis so bagwell's argument fundamentally misunderstands how science works. We, we take our fundamental assumptions, like space and time are, and particles are fundamental. We take those assumptions, and then we make them mathematically precise in the hope that the mathematics will come back and show us the limits of our basic assumptions, that space and time are fundamental and particles exist. We hope that our mathematics will actually show us the limits of those concepts and then trigger the, you know, what as you know, Thomas Kuhn called this the revolution, the the you know, this, this the structure of scientific revolution, right? You 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 come to the point where your theories say this framework has reached its limit. You need a revolution, and you get a completely new framework. So when you look at it that way, then then you realize that that, that Bagwell's argument just doesn't work. It misunderstands how science pulls itself up by the bootstraps. Um. Okay. Let me let me just try one more thing on this. I suppose. Um, but in your ultimate theory. Right, you want to recapture evolution and that that we've evolved by natural selection, and right. I guess I'm still not saying as long as we've got that, we still can't trust our senses. Um, it seems to me, if your argument works, 
Oh, we we still can't trust our senses, and so well. Uh, and, so and then, the way and then that argument works is, 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 is this. So we it, here. So the, the, I'm glad you're asking this because it's sort of technical, but it's important. The Markovian dynamics that that we're proposing need not have an arrow of time. In the sense of an entropy, it's easy to write down the Markovian dynamics in which the entropy does not increase as the steps of the dynamics increase. So there's no entropic arrow of time, but it's a theorem that if you take that uh, dynamics of con uh, uh, Markovian dynamics where there's no increasing entropy, and you take a projection by conditional probability, any projection, so you project that dynamics to a a new dynamics that, that's a limited projection of the original dynamics, okay? So you're, you're getting a perspective on it. You're getting a projection of it. It's a theorem that the, the projected dynamics will have increasing entropy. There will be an arrow of time. So entropic time, an arrow of time, is, from this point of view, not an insight into reality. It's an artifact entirely an artifact of information loss in the projection. Now, so what I want to show is that evolution by natural selection is not an insight into the deeper reality. It's entirely, all of it is entirely an artifact of the loss of information from the projection. Time is the fundamental limited resource that we have, right? The whole, but but our whole world of limited resources and, and therefore competition for limited resources, that's the foundation of Darwin's theory. I want to show that that entire framework is not an insight into the nature of a deeper reality. It's an entirely an artifact of projection. So, so it's possible for me to show that evolution by natural selection arises from my deeper theory but I'm not limited by the theorems that come from evolution by natural selection that say we can't see reality as it is. Those theorems assume evolution by natural selection as the foundation. They, those theorems then point me to say that that cannot be the fundamental foundation. Space-time itself is not foundational. I then get a deeper foundation, say this Markovian dynamics of conscious agents beyond space-time, and then show that I get all of evolution, including its theorems, as artifacts of projection, not as deep insights into reality. And again, so this is why, this is how science pulls itself up by the bootstraps. We take our current theories, they tell us their limits. Space-time is not fundamental. They can't tell you what's beyond. So you take a creative leap, you go, okay, I'm gonna take this big, big leap. I'll put these weird things called conscious agents out there. But then if I can show that that deeper theory gives me back, you know, evolution by natural selection in space-time is a special case, then I can look at that and say, oh, but, but I'm not subject to the theorems of evolution by natural selection anymore. Those, those theorems are certainly theorems in that framework, but that framework itself is merely an artifact of loss of information in the projection. It's not deeply true. It's only true within its own framework. But I've got a deeper framework that shows the limits of the evolutionary framework and the space-time framework. So that's how, like, again, we go from Newton to Einstein and quantum. When you're, when you're in Einstein and quantum, you can look back and say, oh, Newton's this special case. And we're, of course, we're not limited to the laws of Newton. Those, 
in there, we can use them to go to the moon, right? For certain cases where we can use those laws, but we're not stuck in those laws. And we actually know that they don't work. GPS does not work on Newton. GPS won't work if we have only Newton. So, and the same thing is true about the evolution of natural selection. In its place, those the, the laws of evolution of natural selection are fine, but we're not limited. We're not actually ruled by those laws because they're not deep. They're not fundamental. They're only, as it turns out, artifacts of the projection. So, so that's, so, and again, this is not trivial. And, 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 you know, I can understand why, why many people think that you just stuck shooting yourself in the foot logically, because this is the deep way that science works. It's, as, as, as Thomas Kuhn said, new structures that, that come from revolutions. You have to take a revolution and then show how the old stuff um, is a special case and maybe an artifact of the deeper framework. Could I could I ask something here? Um, you've used the word projection several times. Projection in our interface, I think. Now, what what is the interface? What what is the status of this? What is this interface? And what's its status in this account of fundamental reality? And and what am I? The 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 I guess I'm observing the interface somehow uh how do i how do i have self-knowledge within this framework what is uh, i i tend to think that self-knowledge depends on some sort of mechanism of introspection perhaps um uh, but that would be an evolved mechanism which would be subject to exactly the same so exactly the same objections that you raised to perception so introspecting my own mind would be as unlikely to deliver me uh, a veridical picture of that reality as perception, or at least if my mind is part of the natural world, as I tend to think it is. So I don't think when you're talking about the interface and about my interface, another you know, thing that I'm, as it were, observing or seeing the projection that's that's there, you're talking about that the the I there, the self, is what I would, would be thinking of, which was an evolved biological organism. So what is it and how do I know about it? Yeah, that's a great question, Keith. Um, so, right, so it's not a biological thing, right? Because I'm saying the biology itself is an artifact of the projection because space-time is an artifact. So in the theory of conscious agents, now I have to say just a little bit about that theory, right? So it's, it's, a, it's a mathematically um, precise theory where we have this definition of an entity we call a conscious agent. It's a technical term, right? Just like a Turing machine is a technical term. Could you give us a, a sort of a, a non-technical description of it, just just to sure. get an idea of the kind of thing it is? Absolutely. So a, a conscious agent um, has a, a a finite conscious agent. Or I'll start with a little finite conscious agent. It has a finite set of experiences that it could have, like the taste of chocolate, the smell of garlic, and so forth. And based on those, so. So it's a measurable space. Technically, it's a measurable space, a probability space. Um, and then it has a... I couldn't find that yeah. in your Apple Music library. Sorry. You can ask me to play a radio station or ask for your music. Yeah, I have to turn off Siri here. Okay. So, <laughs> I get that all the time. So there's a set of, of, of experiences, and then there's a set of um, actions that, that you can take. And, and a mapping, you decide which actions you're going to take. And what that then there's this whole network of other conscious agents and effectively 
what a conscious agent does is based on his current experiences, it decides how it's going to influence the experiences of other conscious agents. So I think about like the Twitterverse, right? There's in the Twitterverse, there are millions of Twitter users and I'm following certain Twitter users and, and certain Twitter users are following me. Uh, when I get a tweet, I get a choice. I can either ignore it, I might retweet it, or I might uh, you know, do something with it and then retweet it. And when I tweet out, I, I affect certain um, other Twitter users and they can do what they want to. So, so it's this network of, the network of conscious agents is very much like the Twitterverse. And, and that's basically what we model is the Twitterverse with a Markovian model of the Twitterverse, but instead of Twitter users, we put conscious agents. So that's, that's the in intuition that, that's going on here. And so, so now, so the issue then, see, what was the question that you were asking me to push? Well, that's, but, that, I, mean, I guess, well, first, well, let me just say, that sounds like a, a kind of model of a, 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 a mathematical model, functional model of, a, of, a, of some sort of system that takes inputs and produces outputs. Um, so, it, it, the, I mean, you, you call it a conscious agent, but there doesn't seem to be anything in there that, in that description, that invokes the kind of things that people often invoke when they talk about consciousness. I mean, well, you say it, it well, no, well, oh, no, no, let me say it again, because it does, okay, so you start with these, it has, it can have conscious experiences. Right. Yeah, that's found what are they? Are they, are they? You talk about projections on the interface. Are they? Are they oh, right. parts of the interface? Where, where? Okay, very, very good. So, so now I'll get to the, the projection onto the interface, right? Yeah. So, so the first thing to then say is, um, it's trivial to show that networks of con that networks of you know, Markovian networks, like the one I described, are computationally universal. Right. So it's trivial to show that. So, so I can with networks of conscious agents. I can do anything that I can build with the universal Turing machine or, or a uh, neural network. So I can now build networks of conscious agents, which will now, for example, construct an interface. So I'm going to now take the whole, I'm going to use only the, the language of conscious agents and the Markovian dynamics of it to actually construct networks of conscious agents that will actually project from the big network down to um, some limited network of, of experiences, and that will be how we, so in other words, we can use the, the network itself as a programming language to program up interfaces. Now, now, when we, now, now we get to the self-reference that you were getting at. So here I am, you know, Hoffman, and I, I'm just a conscious agent, a complicated conscious agent made out of many conscious agents and all these conscious agents have um, constructed an interface. Now I'm going to use the interface that they gave me to look at the agents that constructed it. Okay, so I'm getting at the self-reflexive thing that you talked about. Mm -hmm. I'm going to use my interface to look at that network of conscious agents outside of space-time that constructed my interface. What am I going to see? I'm going to see neurons and brains. Right. Neurons and brains are what my interface shows me when I turn the interface on the network of neuro of, of conscious agents that constructed my interface. So that's the self-referential thing that you're getting. Right. At. So I, I predict that neurons and brains 
are actually going to give me insight into the network of conscious agents. If, if I can understand the mapping from conscious agents to space-time, I can now reverse engineer. So, so notice this leads to a new project in neuroscience. Neuroscience becomes much, much more difficult. Right now I see neurons, that's because there are neurons. What's the problem? Neurons are there. Now, it's much more complicated. We need a lot more money for neuroscience. I look, I see neurons. I've got to reverse engineer those neurons. What is the network of conscious agents, this Markovian network that give, that projects, that, that first is complicated enough to create my interface, and when I create that interface, it looks like a neuron in that interface. So okay. that's a clean, technical, mathematical problem, and neuroscience is going to be much more complicated. But that's what we're going. To, so neuroscience has to to muscle up to a much more <laughs> difficult level. But I, I'm still I'm still having a bit of difficulty here because you're talking about this this when you talk about the conscious agent, it's got a heck of a lot of structure in it. Okay, a lot of computational structure, and it sounds like you're giving um a kind of, as you said I think you said a soft a sort of description of the software of how it's of how it's um. And the interface is going to have to be immensely complex structure. But now I'm sort of, <laughs> where do these fit into the sort of picture of reality that you're developing? Because they're supposed to be right down there at the very fundamental level. Okay. And yeah, how do question. they get built? How do these really complex conscious agents? I mean, I know this is a very naive question, but I, I better just ask it and then, you know, sure. uh, what are they built out of? What are these immensely complex? conscious agents and their interfaces built out of it. I, I, they can't just be just with all that immensely rich structure just there, just fundamental, and that's just it. Because then it seems we're kind of inverting everything and we're sort of, we're breaking down all the complex structure of the, the, the physical world and, and just repositing this massive structure somehow at the fundamental. Where am I going wrong? What am I oh, well, no, that's, of course, that's that's a perfectly important question. So, so the first thing is these are not implemented in particles. Right. They're not implemented in space and time. Right. Right. It's just the reverse. Space and time and particles yeah. Are, yeah. Are, are simply experiences in in these. Yeah. So, so the idea of, of physical implementation gets put aside. There's no, there's not a physical implementation of these things. In, in fact, the physical stuff is merely yeah. uh, the experiences. So what I'm positing is in some sense this platonic realm right. of, of, of experiences and uh, the network of conscious agents. Now, one thing that comes out of this, the mathematics of it, the mathematical definition, and by the way, each conscious agent itself, the, the, the definition is trivial, right? It's, it's very, very simple. You have a measurable space for experiences and a Markovian kernel for um, how you act based on those. So you basically have just some measurable spaces and Markovian kernels. The mathematics is, is, couldn't be simpler, basically. And that's why, that's why we chose it. So it's, it's very, very simple mathematics. But it turns out when you look at it, when I have two or more conscious agents, even if they're not interacting, they satisfy the definition of a conscious agent. And therefore, they are a conscious agent. So any collection of conscious agents is a conscious agent. So suppose I start, so this is going to get at the, the deeper ontological thing that you're, I'm, so I'm, I'm getting, I'm, I haven't forgotten your question. I'm, I'm trying to get there. So suppose I have a countable set of conscious agents, small ones. Okay. The power set 
the, the set of any any subset of conscious agents is a con conscious agent. Right. So I'm going to start off with ALF zero, accountable infinity, ALF zero of conscious agents. But I'm immediately going to get ALF one com combinations. So I get ALF one, a new infinity of conscious agents. Okay. But now I'll take their power set. And then I get an ALF two. And so what, what, what I get is that there is, of course, the entire Cantor's hierarchy of pop and, and therefore there, there's ultimately only one conscious agent, but I can never describe it mathematically. So our theory predicts that there is one conscious agent. And it says specifically that you can go to ALF zero, ALF one, ALF two, but you can never get to the one. So, our ontology is this. There is one and only one conscious agent, and all the other conscious agents are projections of the one. So it, it's there, there is a fundamental unit. The fundamental nature of reality is this one conscious agent, which is beyond ALF infinity. It's a theorem, but it's also of the theory. It's a theorem of the theory, but it's also a theorem that you can never describe it. I mean, that, that, that theorem is trivial. It's just obvious you can't get there. And so that is the ontology that I'm proposing. There is just one conscious agent, and all of us are conscious agents. Basically, you and I are the one conscious agent looking through an interface. I so think maybe. I'm beginning to get the picture. I mean, this... It's a weird ontology. It is. It's, it's, a, it's a very... Yes, okay. We like weird here. I, I suppose one, and this isn't the most important question, but I suppose one question that I'm inclined to ask is one that, that, that Philip wants to ask is, uh, it, this seems, you sort of have a mathematical model of the conscious, of this one conscious agent. Oh, well, Philip likes to ask, what breathes fire into that mathematical model? Um, uh, it's not realized in any physical subject we've done, okay, so that, so, and, and you did say, you did mention the platonic, realm so is it is this am i just an inhabitant of that am i a form <laughs> is that what i really is that are we all just mathematical abstractions is that what we really are uh, oh so my view about mathematics on this you know, i'm very different um or abstractions Ma max tegmark for example will say that that mathematics is the ultimate reality right and he, and he has right. a multi multiverse yeah. and, and so yep. forth and and but it's 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 mathematic mathematics is the all the reality and i use mathematics a, a, a lot but my my view about mathematics and consciousness is that um it's as much like the relationship between mathematics and consciousness is like the relationship between bones and the living organism you need the mathematics and you need we need mathematics to describe consciousness but ultimately consciousness itself is not just the mathematics, it's what's described by mathematics. And so I'm not, I mean, Tegmark is brilliant, but I'm disagreeing with him on, on taking mathematics as the whole story. Mathematics, so, so consciousness can be described usefully, but not exhaustively by mathematics, but it will, it will transcend the mathematics. And there's a sort of a Gödel's incompleteness theorem going on here in, in my view of this thing, right? That there, that, the mathematical description, no matter how powerful it is, has its girdle limit. It, 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 it's, and so there is going to be, so ultimately I'm arguing for a fundamental consciousness that 
has useful descriptions in these projections, but ultimately transcends them. And that it's a theorem that it transcends them. So the, the, the nice thing about the mathematics is the mathematics tells you where it gets off. <laughs> it tells you its own limits. And, and it, it says that mathematics can't be the whole story. Right. Okay. And, okay. and so when the I then that's talking, the, the way I think about it right now, now, now I'm getting at this point, by the way, um, um, it's deep waters for me. And I, I've got a lot more thinking to do about this, but, but I'll say what I, where I am right now. I think the I that you're, that, you know, that the I that's talking when Keith talks and when Philip talks and I talk is the one, but it's being filtered through various projections, these, these interfaces. And in some sense, the, the one consciousness knows itself by looking at itself through projections. And it loses its, it, 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 it really knows itself by losing its identity, completely immersing itself. It, it doesn't mess around. It completely immerses itself and gets lost and then wakes up to itself. And that's how it knows. But, but every projection is only, in some sense, trivial compared to the Aleph infinity and beyond of the one. But so, so that's why, again, mathematics and the, and the consciousness have this really interesting relation. The, the one transcends, and yet mathematics is relevant for perspectives on the one, and that's how the one knows itself. But have that's you, beyond my mathematics right now. I mean, I... I, I yeah, I, I'll, I'll, I'll let Philip come in, but I, I, there are some of the, the things you say have obvious, I mean... To me, as a as a person who doesn't know much about knows hardly anything about Buddhist philosophy, but it, some of the phrases you're using seem to have resonances with some of that, and I wondered if that's something you've explored or thinking of exploring. I, I'm sadly ignorant about a, a lot of these things. I, I actually I was raised in a uh, fundamentalist Christian family, and, and we were you know I, I was not exposed. I, I'm starting to do some remedial reading, and and. Because I, I do get emails from people saying this is this is like Vedanta or Buddhism or it, uh, also um, I, I, I hear it from um, Islamic scholars for, for mystical Islam and also mystical Judaism. So uh, so the, the mystical traditions in a lot of the religious it, it sort of it's almost ecumenical. The, the mystical traditions seem to say the same kind of thing, and I, I was stunned. But but I began to, to realize that they're saying the same kinds of things. I had a chance to talk with the Dalai Lama. There, um, so I gave a talk, and he and I, he and I talked about about this, and, and it, was, it was he got quite excited uh, about these ideas. So so yeah, I think so. I do see a rapprochement between science and spirituality from from this point of view, where where the the spiritual traditions have been saying this kind of thing that they, they've been saying for for centuries that space time isn't fundamental that there's a spiritual realm beyond. Um, my goal was not to show that they were right. My goal was to try to just get the next step in science. But it turned out that there's this deep connection with what they're saying, and so I'm I'm happy to pursue it. And maybe the the tools will give the spiritual traditions some precise mathematics to put to their concepts. But I mean, the one nice thing about having mathematically precise scientific theories is that it's an antidote to dogmatism. 
the, the whole point about mathematics is to be so precise that you find out precisely where you're wrong or the limits of your concepts. When we just use words, it's very easy for us to fool ourselves and think that we know everything. It's, it's easy to become dogmatic. Mathematics really, well, put it this way, many, um, many scientists will, will die believing their theories, but other scientists won't believe their theories because they've got the mathematics to show that they're wrong. So, so individual scientists are as dogmatic as anybody. So scientists are dogmatic, but the mathematics forces science as a field not to be dogmatic and to move on. Uh, and, and and so that's what I hope will happen in science and spirituality. It can sometimes be deceptive, though. I think if, if, if I mean, the center of the mathematics itself is always should, should be fine, but there's often a lot of assumptions that go into the kind of calculations you, that you're doing. And Absolutely. You know, what are you calculating? You know, so that it, it's, it can sometimes give a, uh, a superficial impression of, I mean, the, the mathematics itself is fine, but it's how it's being applied that is often... That's extremely important, Keith. I, I, and I, that was sort of what I was trying to get with my opening comments about mm. the bootstrap of science, is yeah, that yeah. if you get the mathematics right, then it will show you the limits of your basic concepts and show, okay, I need a whole new mathematical framework. Mm. And, and that's, that's sort of the, the, the whole... So your point, I think, is, is really important. Okay, Philip's king to come back in. Sorry, let, 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 um, let, let, let. Yeah, so maybe I mean maybe we'll have some Q and A in uh, fifteen minutes or so. So if people want to um, be, if you put Q and, and put a question up, um, then we can answer that. Um, oh, I'm torn between two things. Well, let let me have one more go. At, we've 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 come a long way away from. Well, actually, well, we're, we're to torn between two things uh just we're just on this issue of um i mean keith raised that the, the panpsychist bertrand russell inspired panpsychist view that consciousness breathes fire into the equations mm -hmm. and yeah. I'm, I'm wondering here whether there is another slight difference between us here so um so the panpsychist the bertrand russell inspired panpsychist that's come uh um pretty big in, in in philosophy recently um they say that you know what physics does get right is the um the fundamental mathematical structures of reality it's just that consciousness breathes fire into those mathematical structures realizes those mathematical structures but the, the but physics gives us the mathematical structures right so so i suppose if if you were to ask me i hope you can't my, my kids are screaming in the background but hopefully it's not audible um okay. Hope. Um, so, if someone asks me, you know, what are the mathematics of my theory? I'd say, ask a physicist, right? Because we, Panzagi, we just say, you know, physics gets the mathematics right at the fundamental level, and then our claim, our philosophical claim, for various reasons that you might or might not accept, is that it's consciousness that fills out those structures. But it seems to me that you're um, you're seeking, and it's a fascinating project, mathematical structures beneath those of physics. And and then I'm wondering what the what the what the motivation is for that. Why not just fill? Why not just take what physicists are giving us and fill it out with consciousness? Uh, why do we need more? And you said something about well, well, these static structures that um, uh, what's it called, the amplihedron, or, mm -hmm. uh, don't have dynamics. But is is this something physicists say we need to look for the dynamics here? Is this, I haven't heard physicists sort of saying, oh, we need a dynamics. I mean. As it coming back to Sean Carroll's view that 
fundamental reality is just like a vector in a very high dimensional space. I suppose the view would be that that's just what there is at the fundamental level. Yeah, maybe in some maybe dynamics are emergent. Um, so yeah, so I suppose why why not just take and, and it's, it sounds less fun because you know you, you just you, you, <laughs> it feels like you're adding less, but but just in terms of um, trying to have the most parsimonious view, why not just take the mathematical structures physicists are giving us and fill that out with consciousness? Yeah, great question. And and so there's a couple levels on that. Suppose that we take the the physics of space time and particles, to, for, and say, okay, uh, you know, we have the theory about how you know electrons and photons interact and quarks and gluons and so forth. And so we have quantum field theory. We have all the, the we have that the theory of particle interactions, and we can just say that consciousness is the you know the fire behind the equations of, of quantum field theory. And the reason I don't want to go that with that one is that the particles themselves are just, as we said, irreducible representations of the symmetries of space-time. And space-time is doomed. So that physics is not the, those are not the equations we want to build to breathe fire into. They're the wrong equations. The physicists are telling us those are the wrong equations to breathe fire into. So, so now the physicists are saying, okay, so we got to go beyond space-time. So what are the new equations? Well, the we have the, the equations that define the amplitude-hedron. And, and the physicists themselves, you know, they, okay, wonderful. We have this amplitude-hedron. What's nice, the volume of the amplitude-hedron gives us the scattering amplitudes. But the physicists are going to step back and go, who ordered that? You know, what, what you know, WTF? Why an amplitude-hedron? And, and behind that are these decorated permutations. And, and even as they write about these things, you, you hear the guys going, WTF, what, 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 why? Why should there be decorated permutations? Who, why would God do that? You know, the, the, so they're, they're, so the physicists what, why, why do they say the that? Dynamics. Why do they say that? Why, why can't the decorated permutations and the I, I never pronounce this right amplitudehedron whatever it's called right. uh, and and I I, I um, yeah on your recommendation I watched uh, public lectures by um, Akani Hamed it's absolutely fascinating stuff but why can't those structures be fundamental I I, I didn't pick up a thought that they couldn't be well so the amplitude well there's some technical reasons so the amplitudehedron I believe is only for massless particles so you need a theory that goes beyond massless to massive particles and it captures those. And and so they're going after that. There's something called the EFT hedron in cosmological polytopes. So they're trying to find these deeper and richer structures. I think the amplitude hedron was great for what they call N equal four supersymmetric theories of massless particles. But and and so it was a huge win, but but they're not done. And my take is that they're going to, of course, continue to look for deeper and deeper structures until they can get a deeper structure outside of space-time that gives you all. And 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 Nima has all the a paper just in the last couple of years about getting the the um, the scattering amplitudes for all masses and spins. So so they're onto something, I think, with the EFT hedron. I'm have to read those those papers more more carefully. But um, I think that physicists will be inclined to not be happy with just saying, they're, they're always going to ask who ordered that, right? <laughs> so, so I get this arrow. I get Sean Carroll's arrow. I mean, the next one. So, so why, why was that? Why is that the fundamental thing? I mean, they're going to always ask that. 
And, and by the way, that's why I think that there is no such thing as as a uh, a theory of everything in science. There can never be a theory of everything because you can only have a theory of everything except your assumptions, the assumptions that you start your theory with. The assumptions are the miracles of your theory, and every every scientific theory will always have miracles. And and this is um, good and bad. It, it's good because it's infinite job security for scientists, infinite job security. But it's bad in the sense that if, if, if you want to know the final answer, you'll never get the final answer. There'll always be another level. And 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 that's what I'm also pointing to with this idea of the one that's beyond Aleph infinity. I, it's a theorem that is there. And it's also a theorem that I can never, that my theories can never get there. I can go as far up the Cantor hierarchy perhaps as I want to, but I will always be infinitely far away. That's cool. Um, just, can I, so yeah, can I, before you do questions, can I just can I just make that pitch for oh, no, getting? No, well, I, I was going to say so, but I want to okay. say something else before before we get to questions. But did okay. you want to? I just uh, wanted to make a little pitch for putting for for for, for uh, Don and I being closer than you and Don. I oh. just oh, you always do this. I've got to. It's it's, it's in the well, it's in the contract. Um, again, it's quick, this, that the, what you, you what I think what you want to do, Philip, is you want to take consciousness in the sort of pre-theoretical interest, the thing that we have an introspective grip on, the everyday phenomenon that we're, you know, just, just this stuff here behind our eyes, whatever, that we all just know, and, and, you know, intuitively or whatever. And you want to put that down at the fundamental level. Now, I'm not sure that Don quite wants to do that. I think he, because he said earlier that the, talk of the, the word conscious wasn't even essential to this picture. He's got a math, um, um, he's got a picture of a certain sort of mathematical structure or structured anyway um that is doing certain work in grounding everything else and, and it's and he pulls these conscious agents but i'm not sure those conscious agents in don's picture have an awful lot in common with this pre-theoretical picture of consciousness that we have an implant i've been inclined to say that that pre-theoretical introspective picture of consciousness is actually a part of what don would call a projection in the interface mm -hmm. and so if we if we if we call these these you know what Don calls conscious agents, we call them conscious star agents, or we just call them any word we like. It doesn't matter that he's given us a mathematical definition of them. We don't need introspection. We don't need anything like this to 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 grasp what they are. We just right. listen to the mathematical definition, and then you know, that's it. You know, we don't introspection is irrelevant. Even if we were completely unconscious uh, 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 creatures capable of cognition, we could still grasp that definition. So, uh, as far as I see, Don could be a complete illusionist about <laughs> about everyday phenomenal consciousness. Don't, don't let him corrupt you. It could all be part of the. Uh, <laughs> uh, it could be part. It, you know, the interface also has an introspective aspect to it, and this is part of that. And it's all grounded in something that we might want to use the word conscious or you could use any other word but it's got a completely it's got a completely independent definition that doesn't depend on introspection when i thought what philip's version of fundamental reality is one that absolutely relies on that introspective uh, access to identify it and don's it seems to me doesn't rely at all on it because it's, math it's mathematical i, anyway, I, I agree with you. i i would agree that, yeah I, I agree with that pitch in, in the sense that i think that the uh, mathematical theory of conscious agents could come back and tutor us about our intuitions, our introspection, and and correct us on our introspections. I think including including our introspect qualia and so on and so forth. Absolutely. 
So, yeah. I did it. I did it, Philip. I did it. Okay, right. <laughs> Shut up now. Okay, right. I'm gonna. We could go on all night, but I want to. I want to just ask two more things, um, and then we'll go to Q and A. So, just I just want to press this. The two points I've been making <laughs> ad nauseum, yeah. and just two more times. What one for each? So, so yeah, on the digging deeper, just in terms of the mathematical structures of physics, it's interesting you saying actually. In, in a sense, you're just doing theoretical physics because you could just take out the consciousness stuff. But, um, I mean, we I, I take it that we we dig deeper insofar as we can get more simplicity and more unity. I mean, that tends to be the, the most so people, you know, string theory, we hope we'll reduce the standard model with its 12 particles to just these vibrating strings. So we try to get simplicity and greater unity. Um, so does this dynamics you're putting together... Um, do you think it increases the simplicity and unity of, of what um, Arkani Hamed is doing? Yes, the definition of a conscious agent is trivial, but the the dynamics that comes out of it is not trivial, right? So you 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 have this incredibly simple starting definition that that a high school student, a, a tenth grader, can could read this and and understand the definition. It is possible, whereas Try that with quantum field theory. That's let's that's, and by the way, when when Nima and his team do these computational scattering amplitudes with the structures beyond space time, it takes them three or four turns to get. Whereas if you do it in, in space time, it's hundreds of pages of algebra, thousands or millions of terms. And so when you go outside of space time, the math becomes simple. And you see new symmetries, by the way. There's something called the infinite Yangian symmetry that's true, but you can't see it in space-time. So the math becomes simple and you see new symmetries. And that's why I'm hoping here, the, the definition of a conscious agent is trivial, but the, the possibilities of the Marconi dynamics are unbounded, including this Aleph infinity and beyond one. So it, it's, it's very simplifying in, in that sense. Um, and yet there's an infinite amount to explore and lots of work to do. Cool. It's fascinating stuff. We've gone all night. Okay, so last, just returning to the point, which is about an hour ago now. Um, so, all right. So there's this charge that it's so the 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 the, the, the going back to the evolutionary psychology stuff. The charge that it's self-defeating. Okay, and that, if I'm understanding you rightly, your response is, well, no, that falls away when we get back to my theory, and because um, perception isn't veridically putting us in touch with reality it's merely the headset we were but i but i i don't not sure that that um is a good response to an effective response to to, to my objection which is to do with our, our our ascriptions of mental states to other creatures because presumably there we do want to say we we accurately get at reality you know when my child cries and i judge that they're sad that is that is not just the headset I were to interpret this zombie. She really is sad. So and and so that does seem a difficulty for the theory. If the, if it's if I've just evolved these capacities to ascribe mentality for fitness rather than truth, I should. Th how how is that? How is that? How is the validity of of trusting those ascriptions of mentality recuperated in your theory? That makes sense. Right. So, so you're, you're absolutely right that it does not follow from evolution by natural selection. Evolution by natural selection would give us no reason to, to believe that. And, and, and doesn't it, I don't think doesn't it more than that give us. 
I thought your view was strong in that that, that we we should doubt that it that those theories. Right, right. That those, the evolutionary natural selection would actually lead us to doubt it completely. I absolutely agree. I don't take evolution by natural selection to be true. So my, ah, my theorems are saying if you so I I don't believe it's true. as I said earlier I think that evolution by natural selection is a beautiful theory that is an artifact of projection of a deeper of a much deeper theory so evolution by natural selection is the theory that you get as an artifact of information loss from this deeper theory of conscious agents so I'm not I'm no longer so I I used it and I kicked. So I used it to get to the next level. Then I kicked the chair away. Mm, I kicked the ladder okay. away. So evolution by natural selection I use as a ladder to get to this new level of the theory of conscious agents. Now I kicked the ladder away. I'm not. I'm not confined to my FBT theorem that says you can't see reality as it is. That's only a theorem from natural selection. But that's not deeply true. Natural selection is not deeply true. It's an artifact um, of projection of a much more deep framework, namely this theory of conscious agents. And in that deeper framework. Absolutely, it's, it's quite natural that we would see uh, genuine insights into other people's emotions and, and conscious experiences. No problem at all. Ah, that's a, that's yeah. very interesting. So I hadn't quite got that, but then I'm I'm a bit worried about okay dispensing with natural selection. I suppose, I suppose that like we, it seems like we do need an explanation of how such complex mental creatures have have, have arisen um, and natural selection seems to play an important role in explaining that uh, maybe we'll come up with a different theory but um i'd be surprised if we could just explain it just with our fundamental principles of nature at, at the you know the level of but i think the, this, the is very, where, this is but, where we're done i mean that there isn't a temporal dimension to it as don sees it there is just the one consciousness this massive like I know it's a sort of plenum, I guess, at this time, and we're all just aspects of this. There's no question of evolution of anything. It, 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 we don't even have time at this level. Space time's all gone. Right. So you've, you know, you've just got this you know, reality. Is just this massively complex conscious agent that's uh, perceiving bits of itself through it, through these interfaces. Um, that's right. Yeah. When, when space time is doomed, gone. evolution is doomed. Right, space-time being doomed mm. means time is doomed, and that means there's no evolution. the 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 time is an artifact of projection. As I'm, as, so the Markovian dynamics has no entropic arrow of time, but it's a theorem that you get an entropic arrow of time as an artifact of projection. It's entirely an artifact. So, so you have this one consciousness, and when you look at it from a projection, it looks like it's evolving, and it looks like you start with. Uh, you know, a big bang, and then you know, galaxy formation, and then, and then small creatures. That's that's what that's the way the one looks like when you have um, a projection that induces an arrow of time as an artifact of your limited mm. information. Mm, but still, I mean, you you think all right. This is definitely the last point. <laughs> but you think <laughs> it's just it's got me going because I didn't realize you're sort of dispensing with evolution. I mean, you still think conscious minds exist and sure. my conscious mind exists uh and it's a very complicated thing not not just mine uh or <laughs> yours as well and every, keith's and every, every human being and it does seem to be that we we need some explanation unless we're going to go for design that what how such a complex thing emerged if it um it, it, rather than just 
uh, if we're just... It didn't emerge at no time. For it. Mm. The emergence is a process. Well, why is such a complex thing exists? That's, fundamental, uh, that, that's what fundamental okay. reality is, period. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, the, the assumption is that that's the nature of fundamental reality, and that, that is my miracle. Every science, so, and I'm not unique in having a miracle. I, I claim that every scientific theory, if you look at it, has a miracle, but we don't call them miracles. We call them our assumptions. Mm. And so <laughs> there's my miracle, and I, you know, my assumption is that there's this one conscious. Well, I didn't start off with the one, by the way. I started off with the little conscious agents, but I realized it was a theorem that there was a one, so that, that had to become my new fundamental assumption that there's just the one. That That's how I, I mean, got there. It's fascinating, actually, because someone mentioned, and we've spoken about this before, Don, the, 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 the similarity maybe to the Christian philosopher Alvin Plantinga's argument from evolution, where he, he says there's this tension with uh, in naturalism and belief in evolution because um how do you if our senses are, are um evolved for fitness rather than truth look wh why should we trust them and then how do we know we evolved if we can't trust them now he gets out of that by um god. bringing in god god designed our faculties now he's just to be clear he's not using this as an argument for god he's right. just claiming that um there's something self-defeating about an atheist's belief in evolution. Uh, whereas you're getting around it, it seems, by um, getting rid of evolution. So it's so in a, in a way, you, you're both accepting that there's something self-defeating about belief in evolution <laughs> uh, and and then taking two, two, two very different ways around that. But... Well, well, um, yeah, Plantinga is, a, of course, a brilliant, brilliant philosopher, and, and but by, I respectfully disagree on the analysis of, of evolution with, with, with Alvin Plantinga. He, he argues that if you buy evolution by natural selection as your assumption, then, then none of our cognitive capacities are reliable, none of them. Yeah. yeah. I don't argue for that. I sure. argue that our perceptions are not reliable, but not our logic. And, and for Plantinga, the critical thing was he wanted to show that all of our cognitive capacities are not reliable, and therefore the logic by which we came to evolution by natural selection is not reliable, and therefore mm. we really shot ourselves in a fundamental way in the foot. And and um, so I'm not making that argument. And, and and by the way, I think that his argument doesn't hold for all. Well, for, first he doesn't give a mathematical. So so he doesn't give a mathematical theorem, right? It's it, so there's no proof there, it, it, and. The, the proof that we have only holds for perceptual systems, not for logic and reason, for example. And, and, and maybe you could give an evolutionary argument that's mathematically precise against logic and reason. I, I don't know, but, but Plantinga doesn't do that. And, and I don't do that either. Um, and I'm open to the possibility that Plantinga is right about that, but, but he hasn't proven it. And, and I certainly didn't prove that myself. Sure, there are certainly different I, I, wa I want to ask about whether we could trust memories but maybe we'll save that for another discussion uh yeah. let's let's get to the q a um fascinating okay well i feel i've learned i feel i've learned something more about your view then don i didn't know you were giving up on evolution and that does that helps a lot um okay let's come i'm trying to find the first q now because uh, they gave up on space time yeah yeah cool <laughs> uh Oh, the problem is now, because I asked ages ago about the question. <laughs> um, 
I've lost the first question. Um, sorry, guys. I shouldn't ask so early. And then I got carried away. Uh, I can't actually find a cue. Do people want to ask? Oh, here. Here's a cue. The first cue I've found, if not the first cue I, uh, that was asked there, Matthias Dabney. Is there a similarity between Hoffman's argument and... Oh, no, we've just... We've just, we just did that. that one, yeah. <laughs> we just did that. Uh, okay, sorry. This is uh, very unprofessional, but we are the podcast with the lowest production values and we're living up to our name. Uh, okay, Kim Davies asks, scientific theory faces trial by experience and observation, but if there is literally zero probability of the veridicality of perception, in what sense is any theory the best we have? Okay, so similar lines are, I guess, the self-defeating point, I suppose. Go for it. Right. So the way I would respond is that um, under the assumption that evolution by natural selection is true, we get this. But I, but I, I don't think that evolution by natural selection is true. We, we can have. I'm just fine with t you taking um, perceptual evidence and using it to test our theories. Um, the fact that I showed that evolution by natural selection is incompatible with that just means that evolution by natural selection isn't a, a deep enough theory. That's all. Um, but I, I, I'm perfectly fine with um, using evidence to test theories. Uh, and some anonymous X has asked, how often do experts in the relevant fields, physics, evolutionary game theory, or di uh, agree and disagree with Don and the specific claims he makes, uh, such as perceiving reality is zero and space time is doomed? Uh, I would say that most people disagree with me. Um, I, I think that, uh, in club. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, in fact, there's, uh, um, among cognitive scientists, um, there's a different tack when we, you know, philosophers typically try to give the self-defeating argument that I've discussed here. But the cognitive scientists use a different argument against me. They, they'll say, um, for example, Brian Scholl and, and, and his students at, at Yale will, will say that um, I have some technical problems because I don't take into account that there could be many, many different um, fitness payoff functions. And if I, you know, they, they say if you assume that... Um, there's no cognitive penetration of perception. Then there can be only a single map from the world into our sensory systems. And therefore we have to, we've, there's tons and tons of fitness payoff functions and there can only be one mapping from um, physics to perception. Then you will, you will evolve to see the truth and they give simulations to, to do that. And, and so, I mean, that, that's a whole other talk. I, I can, ex you know, we're going to have to write back and explain are, but it, just briefly, um, first, it's, it's simply not true that um, that if, if perception, um, there's no cognitive penetration of perception um, by your, your beliefs that there's only one map. That that um, it's, it's simply doesn't follow. That, that doesn't. It's not required. And we have empirical evidence that there are multiple maps. So there's this is this will be fun for philosophers. I mean. You guys know about Molyneux's problem, right? The Molyneux and, and, and Locke talked about that. Suppose a man born blind, um, but can, by his hand can distinguish a, a sphere from a cube. Um, and then his sight is restored as an adult. And he's shown the, the sphere and the cube for the first time. Question, will he be able to tell the sphere from the cube just by looking? 
And Pawan Sinha did the experiments in 2003 with uh, um, people in India that he, he went and, and did surgeries to help people get over cataracts. And they tested them immediately. And the answer is no, people cannot tell by visual that the, they, they don't do it. And so here we have a clean example of one physical stimulus and two perceptual maps, a visual and, and uh, a tactile. And the, the people don't even know that the, they're from the same object. So, so um, there is simply false that there's only one map from, from the physical world to our, our perceptions. And the, the bottom line for, against the cognitive scientists is once you take all the fitness payoff functions and start to cluster them, you can, get, you can cluster the fitness payoffs that are very, very similar and make um, data structures out of them. And those data structures are what we call physical objects. Physical objects are simply clusters of um, payoff functions that, that are very, very similar in their structure. And so every time you look from one object to another, you're changing the fitness payoff structure that you're looking at. So, so um, anyway, that's a technical thing. Uh, so everybody, almost everybody disagrees with me because no one wants to think we don't see reality as it is <laughs> um, um, from an evolutionary point of view. They, they don't, no one wants to believe that evolution entails that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's pretty lonely. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the nature of working on sort of yeah. the, the cutting edge of the field, I guess. Uh, Pooja Sonny, a friend of the show, says, how is the sensitivity or perceiving power of conscious agents different from our own? Well, you are a conscious agent on this theory. Um, in fact, my, my take is that you are, in fact, the one conscious agent um, looking at itself through an interface. So your, your sensitivity, your, your perceiving power ultimately is, is unlimited. Um, should we have a question? Mark Baldwin asking, what is a quale in the context of this theory? I guess that is what you've been talking about all along, really, by consciousness. Is that right? Yeah, it, yeah the quale is just a specific conscious experience, like the taste of chocolate or the feeling of a headache. Um, and those are, those are the, the coin of the realm, right? The, the definition of a conscious agent starts off by saying this conscious agent has these quality that it can, that it can experience. But how does that get mathematized into the, into the, into the account of theory of conscious agents? Uh, you, you make the, the quality space as a probability space. Right. And then the decisions that you make are, are Markovian kernels that right. take the probability spaces as you know, the inputs and outputs. So you don't actually need the introspective acquaintance with qualia to grasp the theory. No, of, no, no, it's, it's all mathematics here. Yeah, yeah. By the yeah, way, that's the way um, it is with any scientific theory, right? A, a theory of particles, you don't have to know what a particle is, it's just mathematics. In fact, we've never actually seen a quark. <laughs> hmm. But we have mathematical yeah. models of them and you'll never see them. <laughs> yeah. Final question from Ross R. Idealist theories describe the reality of dreams pretty well. Why does waking life feel different than dreams? Isn't the assumption of a physical world the best explanation? Well, the physicists don't think so. Right? The physicists are telling us that space-time is doomed. So if you, by physical world, you mean a space-time world with you know particles and so forth in it, then the physicists are telling us that 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 is not the best explanation, and they've moved on. You know, that that's over. 
and they're moving on to amplitudehedra and decorated permutations and so forth. So the assumption of a space-time physical world being the, the best explanation, it has already been rejected by our best physics. Um, so so I, now, how does waking life differ from dreams? Um, it's, it's certainly possible to have a distinction, even in a theory in which consciousness is fundamental, between what we call waking life and, and, and dream life, right? It could be <clears throat> the degree of engagement through the interface with the network of conscious agents could be different in, in both cases. So, so I don't see any principle of, I mean, so the, uh, a good way to think about this question is it's, it's, it's suggesting that I should have a theory about how um, in the theory of conscious agents, waking and, 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 and dream are, are different. And I, I perfectly agree, but I think we have the tools to do that, but we do need to do it. So if the question is, you know, should we do that? Absolutely. We should do that. But I think we have the tools. If the question is why not just stick with space-time physics, the answer there is because the physicists have told us don't do that. <laughs> Beautiful. That's a, a lovely place to end. And um, um, I mean, it has been a wonderful discussion. I want to go on all night, but um, is there anything you'd like to say to viewers and listeners about where they can find more about Donald Hoffman? I'm sure many of them are already familiar with your work, but just in case they've been living under a rock. Oh, well, I guess um, my book, The Case Against Reality, um, is... is a, a good place and we have a new paper if, if people want to see the the, the newer work uh, on consciousness since that book we had a paper come out in january it's called fusions of consciousness so if you just google my name and the title is fusions of consciousness you can get the latest i have a paper coming out on J june 24th which actually then starts to um propose concrete experiments to show exactly how the momentum distributions of quarks and gluons inside the proton can be modeled by the theory of conscious agents. So, so my goal is to start with the theory of conscious agents and get exactly the momentum distributions that physicists have found for particle scattering of quarks and gluons inside protons. So, so this is not just intended to be hand wave. So, June twenty fourth, if people are interested, I'll have I'll publish the uh, the proposal for these experiments and in all the definitions we need for going from the theory of conscious agents into physics to to actually start to do these experiments. Fantastic. We could put the link to that paper in the notes for the video, and I'm On really excited about about. Sorry, yeah, I'm really after June twenty fourth. Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, the fusions of consciousness one. Oh, the um, fusions. Right, 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 right. I'm really excited to interact with this conference we've got in September. And you, we got on briefly to sort of spiritual matters early. And we have, as well as the scientists and the philosophers, we have a Hindu monk coming, who is also a philosopher, coming and talking oh. about uh, his view that um, consciousness is at the fundamental level and how he thinks that interacts with the mind-body problem and so on. So, yeah, should be some really interesting discussions. That's going to be fun. Ah, well, thanks so much, Dom, for spending two hours of your time with us. You've been very generous. Thank you both. You've been just wonderful to talk with, as always. It's always a pleasure to talk with you both. So I look forward to doing it again. Thank you, Dom. Thank you very much. Okay. And you know, I mean, I thought this wouldn't happen this time, but actually what we, what we often find at the end of Mindchat is, I think has reoccurred again, that Despite all the disagreement, I think we can all agree at the end of the day that. Hold on. 
consciousness is, you know, wherever it is. And nowhere else. <laughs>